All right, well, we'll go ahead and, and begin. I, uh, those of you who, who know me know that it's uh, probably a bit laughable that I would be up speaking about something in history. History is one of the subjects both in high school and in college that my main objective was to not look at it at all until the night before the test and try to get enough in my head that I could regurgitate the next day and promptly forget everything. That made the final a little tough because I had to start remembering that that I didn't remember. But anyway, I made it through those things. Uh, so uh, you, you know that I'm not an expert on uh, uh, William Tyndale, who we're going to talk about today. I did, uh, uh, our, our, our source primarily is this, this book by John Piper, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And I think uh, any of the, you have read any of that, or I would recommend that you, you do that. I've found the ones I've read and, and heard in Sunday school have been a great blessing uh, to me. Um, so much of, much of the material that I have today comes from Piper's book, uh, probably most of it. Uh, a few other sources that I, I use is uh, there is a Tyndale.org. Um, ChristianityToday.com has quite a bit on, on Tyndale, and then there's another Christianity.com, and then BannerOfTruth.org all had information, and there's plenty more, plenty more out there. So I just ask as we get started, how many are pretty familiar with William Tyndale? Anybody claim that? Got a, got one up here in the front, kind of going like this. <laughs> yep, same era. Same era as art. Uh, we, by the way, we have great blessing here today of having Gary and Barbara Chandler with us. Uh, for those of you who've been around a long, long time, you remember them, uh, and uh, they were gracious enough to stop through and and stay with us last night. And we really enjoyed uh, catching up, and they were catching up on a lot of you through us. So you can you can only imagine what we told them. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it's good to have them here, and I, we were talking, Tyndale came up, of course, it was on my mind, and, you know, do you know anything about him? Well, Barbara, pretty good, really. She knew that, she knew what century, she knew what country, and that was way ahead of me when, before I started this, so that's, uh, that's really good. So let's, let's begin with prayer. Lord, I thank you for uh, this day you've given us, Father, we uh, just, Enjoy the times when we can gather with your, with our brothers and sisters, with your church, and uh, we ask your blessing on on what uh, is ahead for us today, both in this Sunday school, and in worship service. Lord, may we honor you in all we do. Lord, help us to understand your truth uh, about what you have for us today. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, the uh, servants of sovereign joy, we. Uh, it's actually divided up into books within the big book. It's a big book, so don't let it intimidate you. The, uh, it is a big book. So I, generally, I never even pull a book of that size off the shelf. Uh, but it's broken up into small chapters, and uh, fairly small chapters, and, and into different books. And I, I think this was actually books that he had already published. Does anybody know? I think that's probably true. And then this was compiled into this, uh, this format. So this book five is called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. The three biographies that are in it are William Tyndale, uh, John G. Payton, or Patton, and 
Adoniram Judson. And I know nothing about the other two, so please don't ask anything about that. Here's where we'll go today. Uh, just an outline for today. I'm going to first start talking about just the introduction to uh, Book 5 that Piper brings up, the idea of filling up uh, the afflictions of Christ. Then I'll move through an overview, a quick overview of Tyndale's life, uh, talk about his developing passion in a part of his life, and then him as a fugitive. Finally, he was martyred, and then we'll look at the effect that, that he's had on, on us, in fact. First, uh, filling up the afflictions of Christ. Piper said that it was a, a sobering discovery that God spreads his life-giving news about Jesus Christ through suffering and martyrdom. And that is sobering if we think about that, especially as we think about what we're seemingly moving into or, or right in the middle of in our society. He says that the afflictions are not only uh, the result of missionary fruitfulness, but they're also the means. So God uses the affliction to spread uh, the, the light of Christ and uh, shine brightly. Quoting Piper, the seeds fall, seed falls into the ground and dies, not just once in martyrdom, but over and over as we obey the command to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. So God's painful path to reach the people's suffering will result from faithfulness. Uh, John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So suffering is actually a part of God's strategy uh, for making known to the world who he is, that he loves us, and finally, you think about it, how much he is worth when we, when we suffer for him or even are martyred for him. Uh, Piper says, Christ's suffering, I, I love it when these good preachers have these neat phrases. You know, MacArthur does this a lot, Piper, of course. Uh, Piper says, Christ's suffering is for our propitiation. Our suffering is for propagation. Interesting. Um, so we need to keep in mind that suffering is not merely a consequence of, of what happens when we live for Christ. It, it's actually a central strategy. So as a, your persecution is for a witness, and this is Piper, as illustrated by frontline servants, quoting Piper, God's strategy for breaking through Satan's authority in the world and spreading the gospel and planting the church includes sacrificial suffering of his frontline heralds. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So how do sheep handle wolves? It's a little rough on the edges at least, isn't it? And uh, he's saying that he's sending us out like that. So Jesus knew of suffering. Paul knew of suffering. And it was a, just a portion. Now, a sobering, a very sobering passage is in Revelation 
chapter 6. You're familiar with this. Revelation 6, 10 and 11. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. So the martyrs in heaven crying out, you wait until the others that are going to be killed come in. So we filling up with the afflictions of Christ. I, you know, you read that passage, it's Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of course, you know, we don't want to connect our suffering too closely uh, with that of Christ. There's only one Redeemer. We can't die for anyone and save anyone. We don't do that. Uh, he, he is the one. So if we're filling up you know, with his afflictions, what, is, what does that mean? Any ideas? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, that's one idea of it that's continuing on. Uh, yeah, anybody else? I'll quote what Piper says. According to him, it means that Paul's sufferings fill up Christ's afflictions not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. So in one way, it's, it is carrying it on, but it's not anything yet that we do. And I know that wasn't anything in your mind. Um, but it's extending it to the people that need it. So... Uh, obviously, Christ's sufferings are not lacking, but it does. Our sufferings do, and martyrdom does help make it known uh, throughout the world. Now, another quote from Piper. Here is an astounding upshot. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. I thought that was, that was an excellent way to put it. Piper talks about the blood of the martyrs, his seed. Galatians six seventeen says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The history, as Piper goes into, the history of the expansion of Christianity has proved that the blood of martyrs is seed. Uh, the seed of new life in Christ is spreading through the world. A guy, he quoted a guy named Tert Tertullian. Did I say that halfway close? Uh, he lived in 160. He was back about when you were born, I think. 160 to 225. That's pretty close, isn't it, in that range? Um, he said, there's an interesting quote, the, the oftener we are mown down by you Romans, the more in number we Christians grow. The blood of Christians is seed. 
Piper points out, for, for the first 300 years, Christianity grew in the soil that was wet with the blood of martyrs. So again, quoting Piper, so I say this very sobering word. God's plan is that his saving purpose for the nations will triumph through the suffering of his people, especially his frontline forces who break through the darkness of Satan's blinding hold on an unreached people. So we see, even in our day, you, you see a bit with, with uh, the Wilkes in Arabia, and you know there's a lot of suffering going on in Afghanistan that we can read about. Uh, God's word spreading. We, don't, we may not see it ourselves. may take a microscope to see it, but uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, that he uses the word strategy. First of all, I'd say, no, we don't seek it. Uh, we, 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 but we should not be surprised by it. So it's, it's probably going to come. If, if we live, now we've been very blessed in America that we can live uh, up to this point at least, live as, as a Christian, and in general we're not persecuted. We're certainly not. There's very few martyrs. Um, so n no, not seeking at all. When I think of, of the way he's using strategy, it, it is. God, God has a plan, and, and he knows. He knew from the beginning that, that the suffering, the, even the suffering of Christ, the suffering of Paul, and the suffering of his church is going to take place. And so instead of, as we often say, we have this bad stuff that happens and think of all of it's just bad, God uses horrible, bad things to advance his, his kingdom. So it is a strategy. Does that help? His plan? Um, okay. Uh, let's see, which one was it? I'm not sure which one you're, you're referring to, but I'll read the last one. So I say this very sobering words. God's plan is that his saving purpose for the nations will triumph through suffering of his people, especially his frontline forces, who break through the darkness of Satan's blinding hold on an unreached people. So, Anybody else? Yeah. That scares me, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's true and good. I I don't want to get so far over that to say that's the only means. So we're not. That's what we're on today. We're going to see of of Tyndale's suffering. That's a way, a strategy, if you will. But when 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 people see the church loving each other, that's a way Christ is proclaimed as well. Or when you see a, a Christian family behaving as they should, you know, that, that shows Christ. So it's not, not at all saying we should, as Roxanne was asking about, seek out suffering. No, not that. It's just that when suffering occurs, it's not outside of his plan. And we'll see in, in Tyndale's life, it was part of a plan that ignited part of a whole continent. Um, so, anybody? That's right. Yep. And it will happen. I bet everybody in here has testimony in some way or another of, of a persecution or some sort of slander or, 
in some ways that, that we are put down because of being Christians, and we'll talk about it more later, but it looks like that's going to ramp up pretty quickly. All right, we'll move ahead here. Just a very quick overview to try to put it in perspective, hopefully in, in your mind, of where Tyndale fits. Uh, he was born about 1494. They're not exactly sure exactly when he was born, uh, but it's somewhere in that range. And most, most kind of settled on the 1494 and died in 1536. So just some other people that you may have heard of, a fellow named Erasmus that we'll talk about a little bit more later. Uh, was 1466, so born a little earlier, but you see that they died the same year. Uh, Luther was born before and lived longer, so Tyndale was right in the middle of all that. Uh, Calvin uh, a little bit later. Some significant things that happened uh, in and around Tyndale's life. One of the most significant is the printing press was invented in about 1440. Uh, Erasmus uh, translated the Greek New Testament in 1516, you know about Luther's 95 Theses occurred in 1517. Uh, Luther translated the New Testament into German in 1522. Uh, the Coverdale, a great Bible, was, was approved in English in 1537. And then the one we're most familiar with is 1611, the King James Bible uh, was, was translated and, and distributed. So you see where Tyndale fits in there in 1494 to 1536. Uh, hopefully that gets it in, in, in your mind. All right, uh, just a, a, a continuing an overview of, of his life. Um, he was uh, uh, much in obscurity. There's not a, a whole lot known. You know, there's not books written about his early life and they kind of speculate on exactly where he grew up, and it's not, not for sure. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of obscurity there. Uh, most seem to favor the idea that he was raised in Gloucestershire. Uh, that is west of London uh, towards, you know, Wales is on the, if I got this right, Wales is on the far west coast of the island, and it's kind of halfway between. Barbara's helping me out here. Your sister lives there, right? Yeah, it's, it's not on the coast. Uh, this, this town's not on the coast, and it's uh, that direction. It's outside of, of London. Uh, he studied at, at Oxford at Magdalen Hall, which is a part of Oxford, in the uh, first decade of the 16th century. Uh, we know that he received a Bachelor of Arts degree in uh, 1512, and in 1515 he was both uh, ordained, and he received a Master's of Arts degree at Oxford, and he's ordained as a priest in London. After that point, the next few years are just a, a bit of a mystery. You know, he was, he was ordained a priest. He had finished his formal education. There's not a whole lot uh, that, that's written about him at that point. But we do know that in 1522 to 1524, he was a tutor for the young children of uh, Sir John Walsh. And that's significant because the tutoring duties weren't very heavy. I think they said one place I read that the oldest one was four. <laughs> and so uh, I don't know how much. They probably had a nanny too. So I'm guessing that the tutoring wasn't a heavy deal, but it was probably really to give him opportunity to study. 
So he did that. He carried on his studies during that time. And then, as, as, uh, as things happened, we'll cover it in more detail, in 1524, Tyndale moved to Europe and never returned to England again. He was a fugitive the rest of his life from 1524 to 1536. Tyndale's developing passion. Erasmus had translated the Greek New Testament that was published in 1516, and this proved to be an event that kind of set, did set Europe, Europe and then eventually, as we'll see here, England on fire. Uh, the printing of this Greek, from, uh, Greek New Testament, Luther got a hold of that, he translated the New Testament into German in 1522. And then in just a few years, the Bible had been translated, or at least the New Testament had been translated into the vernacular of many of the languages of Europe. So in the 1520s, that stuff was really on fire. And you, as you know, Luther was writing stuff. Things, things with the Reformation were just exploding. So that, that all occurred all occurred in, during that period of time. So in 1522, Tyndale was 28 years old, and he was spending most of his time studying Erasmus's translation of the Greek New Testament. Uh, he also had access to Luther's books. Uh, we're not sure if they had much personal interaction. Uh, probably did, but we don't, don't know that for sure, um, that, that the two of them actually got together. But Luther definitely influenced Tyndale. Uh, and every day as he studied, uh, Tyndale was seeing uh, the truths, and it's what we call the truths of the, of the Reformation. He was seeing that more clearly, and he was teaching and preaching and challenging people throughout his, his world there in England. Remember, he's still, still in England during this time. He especially understood the concept of justification by faith alone. So he was, he was challenging the... Uh, the Catholic hierarchy there in England. The story goes that uh, scholars would dine with him and he would discuss what he was, he was discovering and, and, of course, most of the scholars of the day would be in disagreement with him. As the story that was brought up in the book, one day an exasperated Catholic scholar said, we were better being without God's law than the Pope's. And Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Okay, so you can see when that quote was taken, taken place, he had the vision. He had the vision of an English Bible, and that's where he was headed. So his dear old friend, Henry VIII, was not a happy person. He didn't like all this going on and the conflict in his country with the Catholics and, uh, and this Reformation flaring up in, in, uh, in his country. So he was, he was very angry with Tyndale at uh, promoting Luther's teaching. So he had a guy that was uh, a Lord Chancellor named Sir Thomas More, and, and More is famous for uh, repudiation of, of uh, Tyndale. And he wrote three books, apparently, to, to do that. So he was... Moore was thoroughly Roman Catholic. 
Uh, he was radically anti-Reformation. He was radically anti-Luther, and uh, just following in line, he didn't have much for Tyndale. Uh, all this time, uh, all, all this was brewing in, in England, and we're not exactly sure when Tyndale got this vision. So his, his, his doctrine was developing, but when he got this vision for translation, not exactly sure when that happened, but he got it. And uh, he, he was convinced that what needed to happen was a translation into English so that the common man could read God's word. Um, so he went to the Bishop of London, and this guy's name is, uh, I love this name, Cuthbert Tunstall. Cuthbert Tunstall. I've got a terrible middle name. Uh, my, my middle name, I'm not going to tell you. My middle name is terrible. Not not terrible, but it is a, it, I've never used my middle name. And, and uh, so for years I just kind of hid it, and I didn't know where it came from. And then I eventually found out that it was a combination of my grandmother's name and my grandfather's name. And I didn't know that till like, oh, like seven or eight years ago. So now sometimes I'll tell people what my middle name is, but I'm not going to today. But it isn't quite as bad as Cuthbert Tunstall. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. <laughs> There's probably some of you know. But uh, anyway, it did make it bearable that I found out there was actually a reason for it. Because uh, on the surface, it's not good. But Cuthbert Tunstall, Tunstall that, he probably had some issues too. Uh, all right. But anyway, he went to Cuthbert Tunstall to seek permission to translate the Bible into English. So remember, this guy's the Bishop of London, and the Bishop of London refused. But while he was in London, he met some merchants uh, who were smuggling Luther's work into England. And they convinced him to go to Germany and do his translation there. And so in 1524, uh, he took off. And these guys were helpful, or, I, or they at least associated him with people that were helpful in, in doing smuggling work. All right. Tyndale the Fugitive. In 1524, he went to Germany. Uh, he did that for the specific purpose of translating the Bible. And there he had to be careful because there were both English spies looking for him, Henry VIII was looking for him, and the European opponents of the Reformation were looking for him. So you can imagine there's not, you know, people weren't write, writing a biography as he's going along. He's jumping from town to town, so it's not real clear exactly where all he was because of all these opponents chasing him. And he was, he, as I said earlier, is a, a fugitive. They, they're pretty sure he spent time in Hamburg, Witt, Wittenberg, uh, Cologne, Berms and Antwerp. So he's in all these towns. Uh, uh, he was in Hamburg. He worked on the New Testament. And then in Cologne, he found somebody to print it. And so they started print, printing the New Testament in English uh, for the first time. But the opponents found out about it, and they raided the place. And he, he escaped, and fragments of it were there. They knew what he was doing. And uh, they, they caught up with that part, but he got away. Um, he made his way to Worms. What else happened in W-O-R-M-S? What happened there? Oh, 
N no. Yeah. So they they took they they went to eating nothing but meat. They went on the diet of worms. I won't tell you what kind of meat they were eating at the diet of worms, but it wasn't pretty. So what was that? Yeah, it was a council. They had a council. It was a big one. It was a big one. I don't think so. Now I'm no historian, but I do have one over there. Uh, over there in the corners, one. So if we get too far off, we'll get corrected here and say, "What happened there?" Somebody said that he was. Uh, That's a very loose quote. He was bound by the word of God. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So that's where Luther was put on trial. Is that right? Okay. So it's, a, it's an important place uh, that happened. All this stuff, it's interesting to me that all this is happening in a fairly small area compared to Texas or whatever. It's a pretty, pretty small area that all this stuff's going on, and you got Tyndale running for his life trying to get this Bible printed, and, and he did. Some 6,000 copies, I saw various numbers, but 6,000 copies of the New Testament were smuggled in textiles. They put it in, I guess, cloth being shipped over to England. They put them in there. And then these merchants that he was, he got connected with, would distribute them. Um, the bishops in in uh, in England did everything they could. Our good friend Tunstall had copies burned at the same location that they'd burned Luther's writings five years earlier. So he would gather the New Testaments that came in and burn them. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury bought, bought up copies to destroy them. So he'd find them and buy them. And that money would get back to Tyndale, and he'd use the money to print more. <laughs> so that, that didn't work very well either. Uh, and he actually, as we'll see in a little bit, he, he actually improved it. And there was another version printed a little bit later. So King Henry VIII uh, went in the throes of divorce with Queen Catherine, actually offered... Uh, Tyndale, when he was 37 years old, safe passage to England to serve as his writer and scholar. So he's kind of given up on this idea, let's just bring this guy home. And Tyndale responded that he would give himself to the king on one condition, that the king would authorize an English Bible without notes, come back to that, from the Greek and Hebrew in the common language of the people. So he's asking Henry, authorize a Bible. And by the way, we have published some stuff with some notes in it. So they had the MacArthur Study Bible already back that, in that time. And there were some notes in, in it they would put. But, but they didn't always do that. So he's saying, I'll clean out the notes and we publish. And the king, and, and Tinsdale, uh, the king refused to do that. And Tyndale never returned. Uh, to his homeland. Uh, if the king and the Roman Catholic Church would not provide a Bible for the common man to read, then Tyndale would, uh, even if it cost him his life. And it did. In 1535, he'd been running all this time and they'd been trying to catch him, and in 1535, a guy just 
kind of uh, undercover, got in, inside his circle and befriended him and uh, was actually chasing him. And he, this guy's name is Henry Phillips. And he, he was from England. So he got inside, got to be a friend with him, and Tyndale trusted him, and he ended up turning him over. He had him uh, basically kidnapped to the place. And, you know, they had, had it all arranged, so he'd be kidnapped. And so from that point forward, for some 16 months, he was imprisoned in a prison in Vilvord. Uh, probably made Barbara laugh again, uh, near Brussels. Um, and his charge was heresy. And this wasn't an imprisonment. Now, you know, some of Paul's imprisonments were he's pretty loose, you know, in a house prison. He's getting to write letters and things like that. I'm not making light of Paul's sufferings, but this was not good. This was barely enough clothes to survive the cold and uh, not, not good food. And, and uh, he, was, he was really in a suffering position. So remember, for 16 months, that's the position he's in. So being, being charged with heresy. So sort of like Luther, he's, you know, he's, he, well, Luther wasn't really captured, but he was captured and they gave him time to think about this. And he also knew what was happening to people uh, that, that didn't turn. Interestingly enough, I mentioned earlier that King, King Henry VIII had kind of warmed up to him, you know, offering him to come back. Just come back and help me out here. Well, he, that continued. Henry VIII through Cromwell uh, offered safe he tried to get safe passage back so he worked with the people that had him imprisoned over there and tried to get it get it where they would release him and they wouldn't do it so now you're he's caught up in the reformation grind if you will and he always had, was but now in prison he's he's under the catholic church and that that's the oppression that he's he's getting and king henry the 8th couldn't even get him back so after this almost a year and a half he was brought to to trial for heresy he was believing crazy things like the forgiveness of sins and that the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. He was accused of believing that faith alone justified. So on the morning of October 6th, 1536, they took him and they strangled him, burned him. His last words, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So the rest of what I have here uh, is the, what I call the Tyndale effect. He made a lot of difference to us. Um, he learned, he knew eight languages. He learned Hebrew, uh, which helped him uh, better understand uh, the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So now I could read the original language in Hebrew, and it helped him understand that, and so he produced a new Bible, a revised version, if you will, um, of, of his work in 1534. So he improved, improved what he had and published that. Piper says, that it, there's another part of the, the book that he says that, that Tyndale was singing one note from a certain point in his life, and it was translate the New Testament where the common man can read it. 
That was, the, that was the single note of his life. So Piper says, if Tyndale was always singing one note, this was the crescendo of the song of his life. He finished and refined the New Testament in English. Now remember, before Tyndale came along and all this stuff started happening, the only translations that, that were ha had were written by a guy named, I know, who put... When you live during that time, it, it's just like some of you young people just don't appreciate that the, us older ones do remember things that occurred and aren't remembered just like that. Wycliffe translated, but there wasn't printing press at that point, so it was handwritten English stuff, so it couldn't be, couldn't be printed and published uh, like, like Tyndale had the vision of. Um, so uh, that was about 130 years before Tyndale that, that the translation just in handwritten. Uh, occurred, and Piper pointed out that for for thousand years, the only translation of Greek and Hebrew Bible was into Latin. Latin Vulgate. What does Vulgate mean? Blake, can you help me? <laughs> Common. Okay. All right. So, Latin Vulgate meaning Common Latin, more or less. Okay. Thanks. I uh, should look that stuff up before I get up here, shouldn't I? Uh, but, but few people at that time later on understood it. I mean, very few people understood Latin. Um, before he was mar martyred, and this is just amazing to me, this guy's working by himself. He had translated all the New Testament and had revised it. He translated the Pentateuch, Joshua to Second Chronicles, and Jonah. That's a pretty big chunk of the Old Testament. Now you recall that uh, his dying request was, O oh Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That request seemed to find fulfillment just two years later. Henry authorized what they called the Great Bible, and I think I've seen it referred to as the Coverdale Bible, to be put all throughout England. It's a big change from uh, chasing him off to uh, publishing it throughout England. So that was basically, that, that Bible was basically Tyndale's own work. One estimate suggests that the King James New Testament was 80, you see different estimates, but over 80% of it was directly his translation. That's big, so you're looking what, 80 years later or something like that, these, a bunch of guys got together and produced that, um, and 80-something 80, 80 percent of it, even in the Old Testament, there's estimates of up to 75 or so percent of the Old Testament translated into English first was from him, one guy. Uh, so he, he essentially single-handedly gave us our English Bible as we, uh, we, we know today. Art still reads that original one. <clears throat> I'm glad you're here, Art. <laughs> so, so Tyndale was he—he he was actually a linguistic genius. He—he he was fluent in in eight languages, and I, I found some quotes that describe this. And this is this is so far removed from where I am stumbling through the English language, and I'm sure you've noted many times. I've already butchered it many times today. 
But I, I hadn't really thought about too much, and, and I'm, I'm sure that Blake, knowing, knowing the original language, uh, runs into this a lot. Uh, there's a lot of art in translating it. You know, you can, you can try a word. Boy, help me here, Blake, if I get too far off. You, you try to translate a word, and you get that, and then you translate the next Greek word, but those don't fit together in English. And they may be reversed, or there may not even be a word for it, or there may be multiple words for it. So you have to figure out not just translating words, it's translating ideas and thoughts. Very, it's not, that's not an easy thing to do. So he, he was trained in that, and God gave him the skill to be able to do that. And you can see that just, you know, not long after his life, how much of the, his work they actually just used. You know, you get 50 or 60 guys together and say, how do you say this? And I said, he said it just right, you know, they put it in there. So it's just incredible what he did. So here's a few quotes about, uh, about Tyndale. Uh, Tyndale's greatest achievement was the ability to strike a fallacious balance between the needs of scholarship, simplicity of expression, and literary gracefulness, all in a uniform dialect. Another one, Tyndale's conscious use of everyday words without inversions in a neutral word order and his wonderful ear for rhythmic, rhythmic patterns gave to English not only a Bible language but a new prose. So he affected the English language dramatically with, with his work from the Bible. Uh, so another quote, simple, more simple one. His craftsmanship with the English language amounted to genius. Uh, so this, this phenomenon of this uh, literary work uh, was, a, was actually caused a spiritual explosion. It was the kindling that set uh, England on fire uh, for the rest of Reformation. Uh, so... That's, I'll stop there, and then we'll kind of get into some application and a few more things. But any, any comments or, or questions? I think he translated from the Greek to English in handwritten copies. That, does that anybody have a different? I believe that's correct. But it just couldn't be widely distributed, and apparently I'm not sure Tyndale had a copy of that. Oh, they have a, at where he uh, grew up around, however you say that, Gloucestershire? Gloucestershire, that's it. Sounds like we're in, in uh, Susie, doesn't sound like we're in uh, Bella Vista, Arkansas. All the streets, <laughs> all the streets in Bella Vista, Arkansas have these names, and, and I never knew, knew where they came from, but that's a, a monument to him. Okay, anything else? All right, so how or what caused Tyndale to be able to do all this? What, what was in him? How'd he do this? Yeah. Obviously, Art said it had to be the Holy Spirit, obviously moved by God to make it happen. The printing press is huge. In so many ways, but this one was one. It, it gave us our Bible. 
Yeah, and it gave us the Reformation for sure. Yeah, that's right. So he had to have unbelievable courage. So you think about that. He knew what was going to happen unless something really changed, that he was probably going to die on this venture. And he left his home. That's not all that easy to do. You leave, leave your home country and go to another country. Express purpose of producing a Bible. So he had, he had vision. He, he had a vision, I think given by God, a vision of what, what needed to happen so that the common man could understand the Word of God. He had the courage to carry it forth. Think of the years that he spent. Think of 1522 to 24, he was studying like crazy, and he was preaching, so he was going forth and preaching. He worked, he worked hard at this. It wasn't something he just sat down and a, a thing just come forth. It took him years to get this accomplished. So it was tremendously hard work, uh, which would include his education at Oxford. Um, he was also crafty. He ran. He was a fugitive and ran from the, ran from the authorities and successfully did a big work that's very visible. It should be. I mean, they're printing Bibles and shipping them out of there and didn't get caught for quite a while. So he's crafty in his work. So uh, the other one I wrote down is passion. He, he had a passion uh, for God's Word and the truth of God's Word, and he never broke. And uh, So... How does this story relate to us today? Ken's not here, so we can't get, get Ken's version of what's happening today. But I think you know it. What do you see as applications to today for us? Brian? going to take more courage as things happen. I, I wish I would have. I heard this on the radio, so I didn't get all of it. I didn't catch the company name. There was a, a fairly major company that a, the president or CEO just, just said that he supported the Texas abortion law. He was, he was fired from the company that day. So I don't know whether the guy's a Christian or not, but that tells you how tight the noose is, at least in so many places. So, you know, where it appears, where we appear to be headed right now is a time of, of a bit more direct persecution. You know, there, I, uh, obviously certain things, and so much of it is political, and there's political things get censored, but it's going to be more and more that things that we hold dear uh, are going to be have pressure put upon those things where we're cut off of the uh, social media or whatever's been said. So it, I, I personally don't think it's going to be that long until they're going to be you know, looking at sermons and sending spies in to, to churches to find us preaching the heresy, uh, uh, their heresy, what they would call heresy of the day. And uh, so it's going to, you know, you look at Pendale, it's going to take, it's going to take some talent uh, to work through it. God's leading uh, to work through these things. It's going to take a lot of courage on our part and a lot of faith to go forward. And uh, so, you know, God God help us all uh, 
as we move into that time. More comments? Rob? Yeah, that's a good point. Technologies that we call often and rightly so evil, uh, uh, that, that people propagate evil with it, the technologies available, and, we, and Christians use it. One, one of my favorites, I can't remember which missionary it was telling us about this, back when the, there were a lot of refugees coming into Europe, and so they were coming along a certain path from Eastern Europe, if I remember correctly. They're just walking down the path, and so this ministry got a deal where they all had cell phones, or a lot of them had cell phones, and they, they didn't have any way to charge the cell phones. So they'd get to this, this town, this checkpoint, and these Christians would give them, say, would you like to charge your phone? And they'd say yes, and so they'd plug in their charger to the phone, but loaded into that, they were downloading software of the Bible and, and things about Christianity was going onto these people's phones. I thought, that's pretty clever. Uh, so there, there are ways, and Rob, that's a great point. We, we should use, uh, use what we have available to, to get our message out. Anything else? You're right. We do. I do. Does make it more precious as we think on this, doesn't it? Okay, I see it in your eyes. You thought you were going to get away, but you're not. Uh, just want to point out next week, going to begin a new series. I'll give you an opportunity to plug it more, Ryan, if you'd like. But next week, a, a book called Spiritual Gifts by Thomas Schreiner, and, and Ryan's going to lead the whole series of uh, discussing that book. You want to add anything? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, next next week. Good, good. Next time we have Sunday school, it'll start. Yes. Yeah. Look forward to that. So about how many sessions is it going to be? Still working on that? Seven? Okay. So that's where we're headed next. So remember, next week is the men's retreat and, and uh, no Sunday school, but uh, start, start in two weeks. thought just in case we had some time, we might discuss... Tyndale and Erasmus. As I mentioned earlier, they both died, and this is just, they were kind of the same time, and, and, uh, and there's a relationship here. Uh, they died, both died the same year. Of course, uh, Erasmus was older. They're both language scholars. Uh, they are both very well educated, uh, Oxford, and they, they both desired uh, to have an English translation. So Piper in the book, he's, he's pointing out there's, there are a lot of similarities between these two. Uh, but there's some big differences. Um, they, they both believed in the natural power of language, and uh, uh, Erasmus wrote a book, uh, De Copia, uh, that was used probably, they think, in Oxford, and no doubt that Tyndale probably studied from, from that book. So there's influence between Erasmus and Tyndale. They were both educated in an atmosphere that was a, a conscious craftsmanship, so they believed... They believed in hard work uh, to say things clearly and creatively and compellingly when they, they spoke for Christ. There was an example in Piper's book that they gave him, I can't remember the phrase, I should have written it down. It's a sim pretty simple phrase, and they challenged them to, to translate that, to, to say that in, I think it was 150 different ways. That was their challenge. It was just a massive number. I couldn't even say it two ways. And, and they were, that's the kind of thing they worked on in, in the language in, in Oxford. So these guys really... Uh, really worked at their craft. Uh, so again, they both believed that the Bible should be translated. 
and they were both concerned about the corruption in the Catholic Church and, and wrote, about, uh, uh, wrote about that in Christ and Christian life. But they were different. There was a massive difference between Tyndale and Erasmus. Uh, the difference had, had directly to do with the idea we must die not just to intellectual and linguistic laziness, but also to human presumption, human self-exaltation, and self-sufficiency. So you probably, if you know of Erasmus, you probably know that he and Luther clashed. And in the 1520s, they clashed over freedom of the will. And Erasmus defending human self-determination and Luther arguing for the depravity and bondage of the will to God. And Tyndale was a 100% on Luther's side. Uh, so his view of human sinfulness uh, uh, set the stage for Tyndale's grasp of the glory of God's sovereign grace in the Gospels. So Luther's, Luther's view of human sinfulness set the stage for Tyndale's grasp. Erasmus, this is quoting Piper, Erasmus, like Thomas More, did not see the depth of the human condition and so did not see the glory and explosive power of what the Reformers saw in the New Testament. So he had a vision. They had a lot of the same vision, but he didn't catch it like Tyndale did. Uh, Luther and Tyndale saw the massive work of God in the death and resurrection of Christ to save hopelessly enslaved and hell-bound sinners. And it grabbed them, grabbed Tyndale and Luther both. And in closing, Piper says, quote, to walk from Erasmus into Tyndale is to move from a lightning bug to a lightning bolt. So both good guys, but Tyndale, another level, according to Piper. All right. Any last words? Okay. We're dismissed. Thanks.